exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. If I had known that I was going to be leading the music when I applied to be the pastor of this church, I would not have come. <laughs> it was after Nathan Herman had already booked the tickets for me to come to New York that he told me, oh, by the way, you're going to be leading the music. <laughs> and, and I panicked. I was, what, what do you mean I have to lead the music? And he said, just stand up there with a hymnal and move your lips. <laughs> and, and I guess it was good enough that it got me the gig. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and I'm very glad that, that I did. And, and something that I did not expect whenever I became the pastor here is that I ended up actually loving leading the, the songs. It's really not my gifting. I've literally asked, I counted, six different people to sing in my place in the last two years that I've been the pastor. And so far, I've been unsuccessful. And when the Lord sends that person to come and take over this role, I will gladly pass it off. Um, and I'm sure many of you will be too. <laughs> but, but something that, that is just amazing that a lot of times pastors are so sermon driven that they don't think about the rest of the sermon. A lot of times a sermon is three random songs and then you have a sermon and that's really the meat of the service. And then you have a closing song. Uh, but what I've really loved is being able to design the service and think thoughtfully through every single scripture that is read, every single prayer that is prayed and, and have this really be the, 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 I think my favorite part in the whole service is really the, the assurance of pardon because it's in that moment when you're confessing your sin and you get to hear the gospel preached before you even get a sermon. You get a little mini-sermon. And this has been an absolute joy to be able to lead the worship for you all. And it's through all those experiences that, that the Lord has just put on my heart over a long period of time to do a sermon on congregational worship, on corporate worship. And so that's what we're going to be doing today. Um, I don't know who said it first, but it's been said you can come to God as you are, but you cannot come any way that you want. Last week, we read about the tragic story of Nadab and Abihu, who decided to get a little creative with their worship of Yahweh. And these two newly ordained priests decided to offer unauthorized fire to the Lord, which the Lord had not commanded. So we're told the fire comes out from before the Lord and consumes these two men, and they die before the Lord. And this is a heartbreaking story. And often when I read it, I'm tempted to pity Nadab and Abihu. But we have to remember that these men were not innocent bystanders. Remember, these men had lived most of their lives as slaves in Egypt until God came and rescued them. They saw the ten plagues with their own eye. They walked across the Red Sea on dry land and, God, and saw God split the sea. And then out of all the families in the whole world, God chose their family, the family of Aaron and the sons of Aaron, to serve as priests in the tabernacle. Not even Moses would become a priest in the tabernacle. But these men would, Nadab and Abihu would. And they had literally, the day before this incident, been ordained as priests to the Lord. And remember that this was in the days when Israel had no earthly king. So the priests functioned both as priests of the Lord and as rulers of the people. Nadab was Aaron's oldest son, which meant that he was next in line to be high priest, and Abihu was the next in line after him. And yet, despite all they had seen, despite all the blessings they'd been given, despite the grand positions of authority these men had been given by God, 
they disregarded God's clear instructions and did what was right in their own eyes. God is gracious and compassionate and he calls sinners to this day to come to him, but you must come the way he commands. Now, I'll be the first to admit that a lot has changed since Leviticus to today. I'll be the first to admit that we are called to worship God drastically differently than the Israelites did back then. This church is not a temple. It is not a tabernacle, and we should not treat it like that. We're not going to start bringing out the blood sacrifices and the robes and any of that. We're in a different age than they were. But in Leviticus 10, there is a principle that is true of all times. God is holy, and we must worship him the way he commands us to. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, please open them to Exodus 32. Exodus 32. If you're using a pew Bible, Exodus 32 is on page 85. And as you're turning, let me tell you that normally we practice what's called expositional preaching. And expositional preaching is simply the kind of preaching that exposes God's word. So normally we go through a book of the Bible and preach the whole thing. And whatever the next passage is, that's what the sermon is about. Um, So, for instance, there was an old Pentecostal preacher who admitted for the first 10 years of my ministry, all I preached on was pants and cigarettes, pants and cigarettes. He was a topical preacher, but eventually every sermon became about his two pet issues, pants and cigarettes. And one day he had a fellow pastor tell him to preach through a book verse by verse, and it changed his entire ministry. So he said by the end of it, I had no idea the Bible was about so much more than pants and cigarettes. At HBC, we believe that expositional preaching is normally the best way for believers to get a balanced diet of the Word of God, rather than a pastor's few favorite meals. But today, for the first time since I became a pastor here, we're doing a topical sermon on congregational worship. This has been a message that's been brewing in my heart for about a year now, and when we hit the story of Nadab and Abihu last week, the Lord just laid it on my heart to finally preach it today. And, And so let me tell you, My prayer for us this morning is that you and I would not just see the necessity of worshiping God his way, the way he commands, but that you would see the beauty of worshiping the Lord his way. Because this morning we're going to see three aspects of congregational worship, three aspects of congregational worship. First, congregational worship must be regulated by God's word alone. Second, Congregational worship must be centered on the gospel of Christ. And third, congregational worship must be done corporately. Congregational worship must be regulated by God's word alone, must be centered on the gospel, and must be done corporately. So before we dive in, let's pray. Lord God Almighty, worthy are you to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This morning, as we meditate on corporate worship, guide our minds that we may best know how to glorify you as your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, look to me, look with me to verse one of Exodus 32. We're going to be reading the first six verses. (laughs) Then the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. 
So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, and they said These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. For many years, I remember reading this story and thinking, how could the Israelites turn away from God after all the Lord did for them, saving them out of slavery? And the minute Moses is taking too long, they either turn back to the gods they worshipped in Egypt or they're inventing brand new gods on the spot. But that's not actually what's happening here. If you look closely, look at verse 2. When the people tell Aaron, make us gods, that word translated gods is the word Elohim. Now, Elohim can be either plural or singular. It's like the word sheep. If you're talking about sheep, you never know if there's just one sheep or a bunch of sheep because sheep is both singular and plural. And the word Elohim is sometimes plural and used to refer to the pagan gods of other nations, but sometimes it's singular and it's used to refer to the one true God in Israel. And when you're translating something, you have to pick one or the others, and the translators just happen to pick God's plural. But look down at verse 4. How many golden calves does Aaron make? Only one. He only makes one golden calf. And then at the end of verse 4, Aaron or the people point to this golden calf and say, Oh, Israel, this is the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Which God who brought them out of the land of Egypt? The Lord God Yahweh, the one who was leading Moses. And then look at verse 5. Aaron says, tomorrow there shall be a feast to the Lord. And there's something important you need to know. When you see the word Lord in all capital letters in your English Bibles, that is not the word Lord. It's actually the Hebrew name for God, the covenant name for God, Yahweh. A part of this comes from a Jewish tradition that God's covenant name was so precious, it was so holy, that we should not use it unless we absolutely had to. So a lot of times when Jewish rabbis would teach, they would say Adonai or Lord instead of Yahweh to, to respect it. And that tradition continues in our English translation where we do not translate Yahweh into Yahweh, we translate it into Lord in that all caps. But we put this all together now, we put all these facts together. And it seems as if the Israelites were not trying to worship some old gods from Egypt. The Israelites were not trying to invent new gods for themselves. What were they trying to do? They were trying to worship the one God, Yahweh, but in a way they were more comfortable with. They wanted a physical representation of the God they were following, just like the Egyptians had with their gods. And they used pure gold and they picked the strongest, most valuable animal, the bull. They seem to have really wanted to honor the Lord. They didn't pick a little cat. They didn't use copper. They used valuable materials and a strong animal. We even read later that their shouts were so loud and so passionate as they sang and they offered sacrifices that Moses thought that there were shouts of war, not shouts of praise. The Israelites were perfectly sincere. You'd think the Lord would have been pleased because they were sincere, passionate, maybe a little misguided. But God does not just care about sincerity. God does not just desire passion, even those things are vital to true worship. 
But God has told us that those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Because God does not just care that he is worshipped, but also how he is worshipped. That's why after he struck down Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, God declared, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. We do not know exactly what kind of unauthorized fire was. We don't know exactly what they did. But what we do know is that the kind of fire they offered was not forbidden. It simply wasn't commanded. They were sincere of their worship of the Lord, but they did it in a way that God had not told them to do. So when the Protestant Reformation hit the world, the reformers sought to go back to the Bible and reform the church based solely upon the word of God with the word of God as their highest authority. And so in this process, they started to read stories like Exodus 32 and Leviticus 10. And they started to try to get rid of all the tradition that had been built up in the church over the years. Because the reformers wanted the Bible alone to regulate the church's worship. And that principle became known as the regulative principle of worship. Simply put, the regulative principle teaches that the church should only do what the Bible has commanded. Or in other words, God's word regulates God's church. So when I say God's word regulates, I want you to say God's church. God's word regulates God's church. Amen. And listen to me, church. God loves you. He cares about you beyond what you are even capable of understanding. But you are not the center of the universe. You are not the thing God cares most about. The Bible is crystal clear that the number one priority of God is his own glory. God cares most about his own glory. And that sounds selfish to us. But listen to me, church. If God cared about anything more than his own glory, then he would be an idolater. He would cease to be God and that would be sin because to care about anything more than God's glory is to worship that thing. And if God cared about anything, even us, more than his own glory, then that would make God an idolater and sinner. And he would, it would be easier for him to cease to exist than to do those things. If you make yourself out to be the center of the universe, that's selfish because you're not. That's misguided. But God being the greatest Almighty, all-powerful, most magnificent, most glorious being in all of existence deserves that spot on the, on the throne in the center of the universe. And that's why at this church, our number one priority must always be that God would be glorified in our worship. See, the danger that we face as a 192-year-old church is that we have a lot of traditions at this church. And too often in historic churches, the tradition of men trumps the word of God. But we need to remember that Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for worshiping God according to the tradition of the elders rather than according to the word of God. We need to remember that Paul rebuked the Colossian church for promoting human tradition and self-made religion over biblical worship. And too often... We make our own golden calves within the church. We make our own golden calves out of buildings or objects or, or things that have names on them or, or whatever it may be. And we have to be willing to throw out all of our idols in the fire and worship the Lord his way. 
if this church burned to the ground tomorrow and all we had was this empty parking lot to sit in, we get a piano, we all sing around in the open air, would you still be satisfied in that worship? Or would some of your idols burn up with this building? And let me also say, newer churches are not better off. They're not inherently healthier. There's been a movement going on for some time in the American church to make the church more seeker-sensitive. There is this idea to change the church to be more attractive to non-believers. And there is some wisdom in that, because even the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. For the sake of the gospel, there is wisdom in giving up your personal preferences so that more people may be one to the kingdom. So maybe we let people drink coffee in the sanctuary. Maybe we update our music. Maybe we drop the dress code where everyone is expected to wear a suit so that a new generation might feel more comfortable and welcomed in the church and be one to Christ. Just a thought. (laughs) But but the problem with the seeker-sensitive movement as a whole, is that appealing to non-believers became the number one priority. And suddenly the church is looking at the world, trying to figure out what kind of worship the world would like, instead of looking to the Bible to see what kind of worship glorifies and pleases the Lord. And suddenly you have churches where scripture is never read, where public prayer is neglected, where communion is almost never observed. And suddenly you have churches that look more like concert halls than places of worship and pastors who sound more like motivational speakers than prophets who declare, thus saith the Lord. If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. I'm just saying. The church exists primarily to glorify God, secondarily to edify the saints, to build up Christians in the faith to do the work of the ministry, and thirdly, to reach the lost. It is a priority because we would love to see lost men and women who are invited to the church and who hear the gospel and who believe in Jesus, but that is not priority one, and it's not even priority two. And when we lose sight of that, we end up with worship services that are more concerned with pleasing non-believers than with pleasing the Lord. See, if a husband brings his wife chocolate for his anniversary, that's a sweet and thoughtful gift, right? Who doesn't like chocolate? That's a good husband. Unless his wife has explicitly told him, bring me flowers. That's not a good husband. That is an inattentive husband. That's a husband who did not listen to his wife when she clearly communicated what she wanted. And some of you guys are like, I wish my wife would be that clear. And let me tell you, she probably was. You just weren't listening. So in the same way, God has told us how to worship him when we gather, so we should listen and do exactly as he has commanded us when we worship as God's people in the church. Now, I know there's some of you who are in here and you're thinking, sure, pastor, of course the Bible should be our guide, but if we only did what the Bible commanded us, then we couldn't do a lot of things. And that's a great thought, because where are pews in the Bible? Where are pianos and air conditioners and projectors and pulpits? And this is where theology is so, so helpful because when theologians, theologians have talked about the regulative principle of worship, they use these categories of elements, essential elements versus circumstances, non-essential circumstances. So there's a difference between the essential elements of worship and the non-essential circumstances. So for instance, gathering on Sunday, the Lord's day to worship, I'd call that an essential element of worship. What time? 10 o'clock? 11 o'clock, 5 o'clock, non-essential circumstance. 
How long should the service be? Non-essential. Probably be unwise if we had a six-hour service. But there's nothing, you know, we're, we're free to do that if we would like. Singing would be an essential element of worship, but should we use guitars or piano or should we sing a cappella? That's a non-essential circumstance. The essential elements of our worship service are scripture reading, singing, prayer, preaching, communion, baptism. Everything we do at this church falls into one of those categories. You know, there is one time a professor at a Bible college who was preaching or teaching on the Puritans and he was telling them that they actually did have three, four hour worship services. And oftentimes they would preach for two to three hours at a time. And there was a student in one of his classes who raised his hand and said, well, what time did that leave for worship? And, and you know, that's kind of fair. Three hours is a very long sermon. I like to sing. We should have some singing, maybe balance it out. But in that question of saying, when do we worship is, is how we often think. We often think singing is the worship part. And then we sit down and we stop worshiping. Right now, everyone in this room, you are worshiping by sitting under the preached word of God and saying, I'm going to submit before God's word as far as the preacher relays it correctly, right? Because I can be wrong. But in this moment of hearing God's words preached and listening to it and submitting to it, you are worshiping the Lord. When you pray, when you hear scripture read, all of these things, when you take communion, all of those are different essential elements of worship. Everything we do as a church on Sunday morning should have a verse attached to it where we see scripture clearly commanding us to do it. And if we don't have a verse for it, we should abandon that practice. So we're never going to have a time of interpreted dance in our worship service. Um, Can you worship the Lord through dance? Sure. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you should do it to the glory of God. But when we gather as a congregation, we have been given clear instructions on what we're to do. And congregational worship is to be regulated by God's word alone. And now we move on to the second aspect of congregational worship, that it must be centered on the gospel of Christ. Turn with me to Luke 24. Luke 24. I'm promised I won't make you do a lot of turning, but if you're using a pew Bible, Luke 24 is on page 1052. 1052. And as you're turning, let me tell you that after Jesus rose from the dead, but before everybody knew about it, Jesus was traveling down a road to a town called Emmaus, and on the road were two men who were followers of Jesus, and they were talking about everything that had been happening. So Jesus draws near to them, and he asked them, what are you guys talking about? And because their eyes were kept from recognizing Jesus, they said to Jesus, are you the only one who does not know all the things that have happened in these days? And they begin to tell Jesus, of all people, the story of his own crucifixion and how these women are claiming to have seen Jesus risen from the grave. And in Luke 24, verse 25, it says this. Luke 24, verse 25, it says this. And he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And stop there. Can you imagine being at that Bible study? Can you imagine Jesus, the Messiah himself, going through the whole Bible and explaining how it all points to him? And thankfully for the disciples who missed out, Jesus repeats this study in verse 44. Look there to Luke 24, verse 44. It reads like this. Then he said to them, 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scripture and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And once again, stop there. The whole Bible is one story by one author and it's all pointing and leading to Jesus. There are no non-Christian books in this library All 66 books in this collection are about Jesus and the whole storyline of scripture has one message that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed. That is the message of the Bible. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so thankful you're here. I hope even as an outsider that that a lot of the weird things Christians do make more sense as you're thinking about congregational worship. But the most important thing that you need to take away from this worship service are these two facts. You are a great sinner and Jesus is a great savior because God is the all-powerful creator of the universe. He spoke the universe into existence and right now he holds all things together by the power of his will. Because if God stopped holding the universe together even for a moment, everything you see would cease to exist. He made the the oceans and the dry land. He made all the animals of the earth, sky, and sea. And then he made mankind special. He made you and I in his image. You and I were created as his divine image bearers, made to glorify God and to worship him as our creator. But the bad news is that you and I have failed to worship God the way he has commanded us. Instead of honoring him and thanking him and serving him, we have honored ourselves. We have prioritized our own wants and desires above what God desires. And when we sin, when we break God's commandments, when we rebel against his rule and authority, God has but one response, judgment. Because God is holy and he is good. And he will punish evil men like Adolf Hitler and Saddam Hussein. But God is so good that he will punish even those who are unkind and unloving and those who serve themselves rather than serving God and others. And that's terrible news because that's all of us. All of us fall short of God's glory. And all we deserve is to be thrown into that eternal prison of hell and for God to throw away the key. But the good news is this. That God sent his son, Jesus, who is the only one to ever perfectly glorify God and worship him exactly the way he commanded to live with every fiber of his being to the glory of God. He was totally sinless, yet he still willingly gave up his life being nailed to a Roman cross to die the death you and I deserve. And on that cross, when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For all who would repent of their sins, for all who would put their faith alone in Jesus, Christ absorbed the judgment owed towards them. And then God raised Christ from the dead as a sign that he had accepted the sacrifice of the son. This is the gospel. And today, if you'll turn from your sins and you'll be forgiven, you'll be redeemed, you'll be saved from God's divine justice, all your sins removed from you. 
And this gospel, this good news of Jesus is why we're here this morning. We came here to praise Jesus and to thank him for his sacrifice and to hear his gospel preached again and again and again. Because let me tell you something, church. The gospel is not just how you get saved and then you move on to it when you get mature. The gospel is our power as a church. The gospel is how we fight sin and how we grow in holiness. And that's what gives us hope through our trials. That's why the Apostle Paul said, I preach nothing but Christ and him crucified. I even say, you know, I love America. I'm wearing, I'm repping the red, white, and blue right now. I'm proud to be an American. I'm happy to stand during the national anthem to say the Pledge of Allegiance and all that. But I'll just say, we're, we're never going to have a time during our service where we pledge allegiance to the flag. That's just not why we're here. I'll also say, I love songs like God Bless America or America the Beautiful. But as long as I'm the pastor, I'm never going to pick those songs on Sunday morning for us to sing because that's not why we gather as a church. You and I are free to sing them anytime we want to in your personal time or at a ball game. But when we come together as the church to worship God on Sunday mornings, our focus is Jesus and the gospel. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And if that's true, and I believe it is, then our entire worship service needs to be centered around this Jesus so that when you come to church, you do not hear the gospel one time for two minutes in the sermon. If you pay attention when you come here, you'll hear the gospel four or five times. Our entire worship service is focused on the gospel and all that we do. That's why the songs we sing are constantly singing about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's why when we preach, the sermons always are to lead to Christ. That's why when we confess our sins, because confession is meant to remind you of your need for the gospel, and then the assurance of pardon is meant to be a short sermon reminding you that if you are in Christ, you can be sure that by his blood you have been forgiven. Even think about baptism and communion. In baptism, if someone is laid down in the water and then raised out of the water, that is a visual picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. In communion, when we eat the bread and drink the wine, those are pictures of Christ's body broken for us and his shed blood poured out for us. And the more we try to model our worship service purely based on what God commands, the more we will naturally end up focusing on the gospel. And now we move on to the third aspect of congregational worship. Congregational worship must be corporate. What do I mean by corporate? I'm glad you asked. When we gather as God's people, we are cooperating together to corporately worship the Lord. That you can sing a hymn in the woods and that is worship. You can read your Bible on an airplane and that is worship. But corporate worship is what happens when God's people cooperate to worship the Lord. We're commanded to honor the Lord every week on the Lord's day with God's people the way he wants to be worshiped because he is the focus of our worship. And it's through this worship of Jesus that it brings brothers and sisters of Christ together. That's, I'd even encourage you, brothers and sisters, don't just run out after the service. I know if you're busy, you may need to, but try if you can to stay for 10, 15 minutes after the service and, and get to know the other brothers and sisters in the family. Like, how weird would it be if you went to visit your parents and you only saw your father and you didn't say a word to your brothers or sisters? That'd be a weird household. 
And in this room, when you were adopted by God the Father, not only did you get a new father, you also got spiritual brothers and sisters. And this local church is the manifestation of that family in one small way. You know, in the early church, corporate worship was very simple. Back then, there were no cathedrals or sanctuaries, but in the early church, the New Testament almost always met in their homes. You know, I've I've heard a lot of people say, the building is not the church, it's the people. And they're right about that, but I just like to edit that phrase a little bit. The church is not the building, it's the people gathered. You know, anyone can worship the Lord anywhere as long as they, they worship him in spirit and in truth. Meaning that if you are a believer in Jesus, you can worship God in your car, you can worship in the woods, you can worship whenever, wherever. And I would encourage you, please do that. But when the people of God gather, when Christians gather as a church, that's not individual worship, but corporate worship. When we're gathered, we're cooperating together to corporately worship the Lord. Which is why Jesus taught us to pray, not my father, but our father. And you know, I'll be honest with you, just straight up. Hymns are not my favorite kind of music at all. I love rap and spoken word, if you can believe it. And there's actually a lot of great Christian rap out there. And I love sitting in my car by myself with the music turned all the way up as I'm driving, loudly singing along and worshiping the Lord through rap and spoken word. That's a wonderful way to worship the Lord. I get a lot out of that. But you know what's missing in that kind of worship? Deb Hardy's missing. Bruce Mead is missing. Gail Hayes is missing. And I don't know... But my best guess is that you three are not rap fans. <laughs> I suspect most of you in this church are not either. So on Sunday mornings, I give up my personal preferences because it, it is better that, Luce, that Lynn and Bruce and Gail and Marty and Harvey are here singing with me than for me to be by myself. And, and I'm, just, I'm not making this up. Just think about heaven, for instance. Heaven is not a situation where we're all in our houses and we just have a little altar in our homes and we never talk with anyone else. But, but think about how heaven is pictured in the Bible. In Revelation, heaven is pictured as all of God's people together, gathered around the throne and singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And I'll even tell you, guess what? When we gather together on Sunday mornings, our worship services are meant to foreshadow that great worship service to come. Remember, my prayer this morning is that you wouldn't just see the necessity of worshiping the Lord his way, but that you would see the beauty of worshiping the Lord his way. Because this morning we saw three aspects of congregational worship. Congregational worship must be regulated by God's word alone. It must be centered on the gospel and it must be done corporately. And this morning I have five pastoral charges. I have five ways for us to apply these principles of congregational worship to our lives. And I'm praying that it changes the way that we worship as a church for the better. First pastoral charge, lay all your golden calves on the altar. Lay all your golden calves on the altar. Like if tomorrow we just said no more pews, we're going to chairs. Would that just horrify you? I'm not planning to do that. I love our pews. But I'm just saying, if that breaks your heart to lose the pews, then that means that your love and your faith and your hope is not rooted in Jesus. It's rooted in something in this world. You hear what I'm saying? And we need to examine our hearts and examine why we love this church and the things we love about this church. Because if Satan can't convince you to stay away from the church, then what he's going to do is get you to turn the church into an idol instead of worshiping Jesus. So we need to examine our hearts and find anything that is not Christ and get ready to burn it to the dust. 
in place of true and proper worship. So lay all your golden calves on the altar. Second pastoral charge. Do only as the Lord has commanded. When my wife tells me what she wants from me, I'm not annoyed. I'm excited because I'm like, I know what to do. I know how to make you happy. And why would we have God's perfect word that tells us, preach the word, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, devote yourself to communion and baptism and preaching and singing. Why would we take all those commands and say, let me improve upon it. Like if I said to Katie, I know you wanted flowers, but I think this is what she really wants. That's condescending. That's not, that's not helpful. That's not service. And when we try to improve upon what the Bible says, usually we just substitute what is good and what is commanded for what is inferior. I'm just saying, do what the Lord commands because we know he's pleased with that. And it's all designed to point us to Jesus and to foreshadow that great heavenly worship service that we will get to experience one day. Third pastoral charge, center everything in our worship around the gospel. Center everything in our worship around the gospel. I think it's even helpful to say anything we do on Sunday mornings, let's, how can this be more gospel-centered? How can this be more about Jesus? That's just a helpful question to ask, especially because the gospel is the power behind this church. So let's aim to center everything in our worship around the gospel. Fourth pastoral charge, prepare yourself for worship. Prepare yourself for worship. I know sometimes you have a long Saturday night where either you were working late or things are tired or the kids are going crazy, the grandkids, whatever it may be. I would just encourage you to purposely pray throughout the week for the Lord to prepare your heart for Sunday, to read the passage we're going to preach on before, to make sure you get a good night's sleep, that make sure that you have food, make sure it's not running out the door, you know, crazy. Sometimes crazy things happen but I just encourage you to make it a regular practice and priority to be here on Sunday and to be as focused as you can be so that you can absorb as much as possible. Because I just think there's value in what we're doing here. As imperfectly as we do it in comparison to that great and true worship service that we're all going to experience, this is a glimpse into the heavenly realm when we gather with God's people. Fifth pastoral charge, boldly participate. Boldly participate. Uh, Choirs and bands are not bad, but sometimes my concern is if you have a choir on stage, it's these are the performers and everyone else here and sits and does not participate. And I've seen a lot of modern churches where you have a praise band up here and you can't even hear the person next to you because the volume is so loud. But what I love about this church, as much as I'm trying to be quiet because I don't want to be too loud because my voice is not great, right? This microphone is not even turned on because I don't want to offend your ears. But I love about this church is I can hear you singing because the sound of your voices is encouraging. And both Ephesians and Colossians, we're told not just to sing to the Lord, but we're told to sing unto one another. So I think it's helpful that you should be able to hear the person next to you. And if the person next to you can't hear your singing, sing louder and sing boldly. That's where I really appreciate the church Katie and I met at, the, the worship pastor. His number one criticism as he was rehearsing in the mornings was, I think we're too loud. I think we're too loud. And they had a full band and guitars. All that wasn't bad. And so you would have a beautiful accompaniment on stage, but the congregation was the choir. And that should be our goal, is that you guys are not observers. This isn't like a movie where you show up and absorb and then leave. You guys are active participants in the service. So boldly participate. Let me leave you with this quote. It's on the back of your bulletins if you'd like to read along. But this comes from this little book called Corporate Worship. Uh, from Matt Merker, 
the author. I recently visited an unregistered church in Asia. The congregation uh, sang with wonderfully, wonderful intensity and emotion. Yet they sang softly and stayed seated, worried that standing would make their voices carry too much. If they sang too loud, they feared the police would find them. If your church meets in a context where you can sing as loud and possible without fear of arrest, why would you not take full advantage of that freedom? Still, whether you're in Asia or America, all of us sing as pilgrim people. All of us sing hymns of yearning, melodies of exile, refrains that long for our heavenly home. Together as a church, we raise our voices in unison, knowing that one day the storms of darkness will end. Our singing anticipates something else, another time and another place. Our singing is not yet what it one day will be. It offers a foretaste of the day when all of God's family will gather around the throne. On that day, we will gather alongside our brave brothers and sisters in the new heavens and new earth, where no power or principality will oppose them because King Jesus has won. I'll bet they will sing their lungs out. The trumpet will sound. A new song will begin. And God's people from every tribe and tongue will lift up an anthem of praise that will echo on and on unto eternity. And all the people said, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you that you call us sinners, undeserving wretches to worship you that through Christ you have redeemed us and made us perfect in your eyes by his grace. And we pray that, that our, our singing, our reading of scripture, our preaching, whatever it may be, would be glorifying to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, If you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.